The FT. Each year at the time of Chinese New Year, the world's biggest human migration unfolds. A 40-day travel rush sees some 170 million migrant workers leave the cities and return to their home villages to spend the festival with their families. This year, the Chinese government estimated that the migration involved some three billion passenger trips by plane, train, car, bus, and boat. The migration is remarkable, though, not just because of its sheer size. Encapsulated within the lives, the hopes, the disappointments of the migrants that make their journeys back home, are most of the big narratives that animate modern China. I'm James King, the FT's emerging markets editor, and on the line with me from Beijing is the FT's Beijing bureau chief, Jamil Andalini. Jamil travelled with a migrant woman named Xiang Ju back to her family on the Yangtze River over the New Year period to understand the human drama behind these vast social and economic changes. Jamil, can you tell us how has life changed for Xiang Ju since she became a migrant and, and went to work in Beijing? Basically, for Shangju,、uh, she originally went to be a migrant because her and her husband had been selling shoes. They had a little shoe selling business in the countryside, not far from their home village in a slightly larger town. But they went out of business, and they had a debt, and they had to repay this debt. So, in order to save her family, basically, she moved to Beijing. She became a domestic servant for wealthy professional families in Beijing. And she's done that for the last four or five years, but unfortunately, she's now obviously materially wealthier. She's got a lot more money than she could ever have earned working on a farm or selling shoes on the side of the road in a small town. But unfortunately, her marriage has broken down. She sees her husband maybe twice in a whole year for about ten days total, and when she does see him, they just fight, and they've pretty much the marriage has fallen apart. And her children, her two daughters, who she says. She did this all for you know. She went to be a a migrant worker so she could put them through school. Both of them told me when I met them. One's twenty one, one's fourteen. That after their mother left and then their father went off to be a migrant worker as well, they were sort of abandoned. And both of them said their studies suffered terribly after their parents went away. They were kind of unsupervised. And the fourteen year old is still unsupervised. She is boarding during the week in a school. And then fends for herself on the weekends in a flat near the school that her parents rent through the year. So, in a sense, you know, in the process of trying to save the things that she held most precious, she's lost them and destroyed them. And it's quite sad to see how that can happen as these migrant workers chase this dream of better opportunity and you know the China dream. So, as these dreams turn to disappointments, do you feel that's a factor dissuading migrant workers from migrating to the cities these days? Yeah, I think it's now a multi-generational phenomenon, right? So you've had people moving to the cities since the early '80s, at least, and a lot of these people have come back. The average time that they spend in the cities is only about eight years, I think, at the longest. And then the average migrant worker they'll come back to the village afterwards. So you've got. A lot of these experiences, people were working in dirty, dangerous, unhealthy, unsanitary conditions, and being treated quite badly. You know, if you're a peasant farmer from the countryside and you move to Beijing, people who are already in Beijing tend to resent this huge flow of migration. In Beijing, for example, every year for the last 12 years, you've had net inward migration of nearly 500,000 people, so half a million people every year 
added net to the city population, it just makes life less and less pleasant in Beijing and people blame the migrants. So if you're a migrant, you get discriminated against, you get tricked, you get cheated, you often, you know, in many cases, they don't get paid properly, they don't have a social welfare protection system. And so, you know, it's less and less attractive to move into the cities. But at the same time, life's gotten quite a lot better in the villages. The government has poured a lot of money into the small towns and villages. And so if you go there, there are jobs and there's, you know, life's much better. So it's a trade-off and people are less willing to do that. And they see what happens when you break a family up. There's a human cost and people are less and less willing to uh, pay that. And what does this mean for China's economic competitiveness? I mean, there are, I think, an estimated 275 million migrant workers in China's cities. And for many years, the factories and, and service sector industries could rely on this human tide coming to the cities and providing cheap labor. But if that tide is now slowing to a trickle, what does this mean for China's competitiveness in the future? Well, people in China and the World Bank and others talk about how the Chinese growth model is basically run out of steam. The model that lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, that led to this huge, as you said, this huge tide of humanity from the countryside into the cities, this urbanization process, the very high rates of growth, more than 10% for 30 years, that is basically coming to an end. And you see double-digit wage increases every year for the last several years. And the working age population has now peaked in China. So what happens is wages are rising, manufacturing becomes less and less competitive in China, and the need for innovation and for China to move to a more productive economic model, we've really reached that point already. So this is really, it's fundamental because you can't rely anymore on an endless flow of cheap, pliant labor. First of all, you have to raise wages, you have to get people to consume more, but you also need to come up with new ways to raise productivity in China, and that's where we're at now. It's now a mid-income economy, and for it to avoid staying at the mid-income level, it really needs to upgrade its industrial economy. Are there any signs that it might be able to achieve that? Is mechanization and robots being used widely, or uh, do you think it's going to get stuck? Well, I mean, that's uh, really the trillion-dollar question. But if you look at mechanization, for example, China in the next few years will have more robots than any other economy. Supposedly, that's the projection that many people are making. It's obviously losing competitiveness in the things that it's done well till now. The government is very aware of this issue, and, and it's even encouraging the shift up the industrial upgrading chain. And it's also encouraging wage increases as well across the country. I think that it needs to do a lot more to make the economy more innovative. It needs to probably loosen up on some of the tight political controls that it still maintains on all sorts of creative industries and areas of the economy that could be very innovative but are not because of the Communist Party's fear of loosening up and losing control over it. So I think there is a understanding of the issue and I think there are certainly strong attempts being made in some areas, but whether or not China can avoid the so-called middle-income trap, this is the big question. Thank you very much, uh, Jamil. Fascinating insights. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.